Look at the change from the iPhone and that sort of innovation and the power on the phone. You're telling me we can't do that in the energy sector. I just don't buy it. So it's government policy being shaped right, but it's also you know, a realistic assessment that governments need to articulate to all generations, the developed and developing world, make sure the developing world is on board, has the financing for it as a priority uh, to make this happen. You are listening to the Siemens Energy Podcast Series. The energy sector is undergoing an unprecedented transformation, presenting both challenges and opportunities. The demand for energy is increasing worldwide. And at the same time, we must combat the effects of climate change and reduce CO2 emissions. On each episode, we bring you conversations with some of the world's cutting-edge thought leaders in energy and related subjects. Our goal is to help you understand energy, the challenges we face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources. Now, here's your moderator, Amy Pemple. Today, we welcome John Defterios, former Emerging Markets Editor at CNN and an Energy Fellow for the World Economic Forum. John is an award-winning journalist with over 35 years' experience and is joining us to share his expertise and opinions on the global energy transition. Hello, John, and thank you for joining us. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and what you're doing now with regard to the energy transition and the energy industry. Well, thanks, Amy, for having me. I've been in the uh, journalism business for about 35 years. I started my career in Washington with PBS, the Nightly Business Report, as a special series producer and correspondent, then moved to London uh, in a joint venture with Reuters Television. Uh, and had a chance to cover energy from the mid-1980s, going to Texas during the first major oil bust when we got down to about $6 a barrel, went to Alaska to the North Slope uh, to take a look at how Alaskans were surviving that oil bust and who stayed and who left uh, overall. And then when I moved overseas, I had a chance to start covering OPEC in 1988 and then onwards from there, uh, covering the first Gulf War, 1990-1991. And in fact, my exclusive of getting some video in the Al-Akhbadi oil field in Kuwait, uh, which kind of went all around the world with Reuters and PBS, but all the other broadcasters at the time, is what got me hired at CNN in 1992. And then I just finished my career with CNN uh, in May uh, of last year. Wonderful. Now, you've been studying and reporting on the energy transition in the Middle East for quite some time. What reasons have you found for the region's aggressive stance on renewables? Uh, well, it's a fantastic question because I was in Abu Dhabi and covered you know, better than 20 countries of the Middle East and North Africa. And then as emerging markets editor for CNN, I, I traveled east going to China and India, south into Africa, and then come back to Europe for uh, OPEC coverage at the same time, the World Economic Forum uh, in Davos. And I think there was seven years ago, almost a light bulb moment, if you will. I kind of had the benefit of being in the oil belt of the world, right? About two thirds of the proven reserves are there. So I covered energy at least 50% of my time in addition to the geopolitics and confrontations we had in that region, very delicate region. But at the same time, there's the International Renewable Energy Agency based in Abu Dhabi, and I've been chairing their events and getting involved in editorial coverage uh, for that seven years as well. And you could see the momentum starting to build, even for electric vehicles at the time, and then the high cost of solar and wind come plummeting down in this last decade and making it very cost competitive. And I think that light bulb moment that I'm talking about is that everybody had a recognition on different timelines, by the way, and that's part of our discussion and debate. Is it 20 years in the transition or 50 years in the transition? Uh, There are some in the Middle East that say it's going to be you have to plan for 20 years 
and, and prepare for the worst. And some, like Saudi Arabia, say we're going to be needing uh, oil and gas specifically uh, for the next half uh, century. Uh, but that's the difference here. Who's best prepared for the transition? And then watching very competitively as the market for renewables picked up, uh, the competition and the capital started to come in, and you could see the prices start to come down. We're not all the way there yet. We have a lot of work uh, to do. But I think it's even interesting to watch, in particular in Europe, for example, uh, the major international oil companies that are now major international energy companies, right? The Shell, BP, Total, renaming itself to Total Energies, Siemens Energy spinning off from the parent uh, Siemens, uh, any in Italy, Equinor, of course, in the Nordic countries, all setting 2050 targets. We don't see that aggressive move by the U.S. majors, but they're coming along at a rapid pace, and, and partially because the investment money uh, is driving this transition. So if there's capital in the transition, uh, you'll see that the energy companies making their own transition uh, to raise capital for their projects, of course, uh, but also to, to save the climate. I, I call it almost a a global moonshot. Remember JFK and his targets uh, in 1960s to get to the moon? Uh, this is almost a global earth shot. We're seeing the transition. We need to accelerate it. And it's going to be the private sector that drives it with the architecture set by government, if you will. Amy. So are the mandates that are being set forth by governments having an effect or are they pie in the sky wishful thinking? Well, uh, that is a, a fantastic uh, question because they're very aspirational. And when I was doing the Global Energy Challenge, which was my last major project before I finished at CNM, which was a year-long series of four documentaries and 30 field reports, a digital platform, four events that we held from Asia to the United States and all parts in between, uh, I found there was a major break in the world. You had the government aspirations on the table and then the 2050 targets to cap global warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade, right? And then you had this demand for oil at roughly 100 million barrels a day. It dipped down during the pandemic, and then everybody thought, okay, this is that moment, Amy. This is the time where people are going to recognize we need to make the transition. We had lower emissions, of course. Uh, oil demand dropped by 10%. The oil and gas companies retrenched on their investment in that window. It's quite interesting because we got nearly a trillion dollars of investment in hydrocarbons in 2018. Right near the peak, 2020, that fell to $600 billion. And now we're running neck and neck between renewable power generation and hydrocarbons. That's just not enough overall. Now we see a shortage in oil and gas projects. We're, we're taping this segment with oil prices, uh, both in the United States and internationally, North Sea Brent, well above $80 a barrel. And we have a shortage. We've seen natural gas prices go up fivefold in Europe. And everybody, I'm sitting in London, everybody knows that their energy prices are going up, probably will in 2022 and even 2023, right? So there's a mismatch, to your point, on the aspirations of what governments are suggesting, even at COP26. Uh, what the money is following, it is moving into renewables. We have to meet the global energy demand of today and then clean up the carbon cycle, the production as fast as possible. And I almost don't get the sense of urgency. I had John Kerry, uh, presidential envoy for climate uh, in Abu Dhabi at the uh, Global Manufacturing and Industrialization Summit. And we had a short but onstage interview. And he says, we're playing with fire. And it stuck in my brain, kind of indelled in my mind. What do you mean by that? And he says, we're playing with fire because we have entrenched uh, interests on both sides and they're almost not at the table talking to each other. 
uh, holding on to the positions. And the meanwhile, the clock continues to tick. And, and once you cross this threshold of 1.5 and get to 2.5, 2.6, 2.8, some of the predictions you see out there, it's not like you get to come back, Amy. And I think that's the global energy challenge, if you will, for industry, the oil and gas players, the renewable players, but society as well and governments. Can you get them coming together at a more aggressive pace to tackle this global challenge? And among those groups, what are the roadblocks that you're seeing and how can they be overcome as, as climate change is really taking off now as a critical part of our planet and preserving our planet? What are you seeing as some of the roadblocks and how can they be overcome? Well, I'm glad to hear that the global dialogue is shifting rapidly. I think it's a little bit too late if I can be candid. I remember you know, covering from afar you know, the Rio Agreement, early 1990s, uh, what do we have to show for the last 30 years? I mean, that's, that's the real question. So why do we move so slowly? And I was giving this a lot of thought and talking to you know, senior CEOs and ministers in this space. And I, you know, I said, what's the problem? And they said, you know, the human species, and this is very interesting, doesn't plan well for the medium and long term. We're kind of ready for the short term, right? So that's the number one roadblock. Can democracies and governments around the world think in a medium and long term trajectory and get that sense of urgency in government? And, and the answer, uh, terribly so, is no, right? And then we have a mismatch uh, as a major roadblock between what the environmental community thinks is possible, uh, what the financial community is gearing up for, and then what the entrenched interests of the major oil and gas companies and producers around the world uh, believe is the reality at what pace they want to move. That's kind of three major roadblocks, right? I mean, I said, there's no easy solution to that. And then I think the other major barrier, and I have daughters that are 16 and 19 years old, and we have this discussion, and they said, and this is very, I think, fascinating and tragic at the same time, when we have the conversation with them, they say, you know, we're very depressed about the future when it comes to climate, right? At that, you know, age, which is shocking, right? So they said, you don't want to be depressed, but in that generation of millennials and Gen Zers or Gen Zs, uh, they think you can flip the switch, Amy. You can go immediately to solar and wind. What's the holdup? So there's a lack of education, you know, number one, and governments articulating to all rungs of society what needs to be done, right? Uh, you know, number two, the money's moving into that sector, and that's, you know, terrific. Uh, but the innovation's not there just yet. So we need battery storage innovation on a grand scale, right? We need not just carbon capture, but to suck out carbon from the atmosphere and lower the carbon bank around the world. This requires capital at the same time. And I, I think you probably saw these numbers bandied around from ARENA in Abu Dhabi initially at the start of uh, 2021, the International Energy Agency out of Paris. They were suggesting around $130 trillion between now and 2050 to hit the targets of 1.5 degrees or less, right? Uh, in the week that we were taping this segment, uh, McKinsey, the Institute, came out with its figures, $275 trillion between now and 2050, $9 trillion a year. And then you have a reality check and you say, okay, we've asked for a global green investment fund for the developing world, $100 billion a year. We're dragging our feet as the Western economies and, and the major G20 economies have put it into the developing world. Uh, and we can't hit $100 billion. So you said, what's the roadblock, John? What are the stumbling blocks to get there? That's a major one, right? And it was almost when you saw the pandemic, we didn't distribute the vaccines and we kind of cocooned and hoarded vaccines in the wealthier nations. 
I remember my first week of coverage on CNN, I said, this is going to be a problem if we don't address it immediately. Apply that equation to climate change. If you don't help finance it in the developing world, emissions go everywhere around the world, right? And you have the fast-growing economies like India and China and the developing world of Africa and Latin America. They need support, and we're just not moving with the sense of urgency, in my view. So you mentioned your daughters, and not every young person has the advantage of having you as a father to explain things to them and give them perspective. Do you think the millennials and Generation Z are being realistic in their expectations about the energy transition? And what role do you think they can have going forward in moving it quicker? Mm, yeah, I don't think they're realistic about the expectations, but I think that the agents of change, and this is what... Uh, Many in Washington say, like AOC, of course, uh, uh, she's been banging this drum that the Gen Z are agents of change. And my, I know my daughter's generation are really want to see this tackled as the number one issue. Are they being realistic about this transition? Most that I speak to, no. And I think my perfect example of this is Greta Thunberg, who I covered at the World Economic Forum, which I was a media leader for you know, almost 30 years. She was at Davos before the pandemic. And I went to the press conference and Amy, I genuinely just asked the question, are you using this opportunity here at Davos to sit down? And have you requested a meeting with all the major oil and gas uh, producers? Here we have the international energy companies under one umbrella right here at Davos. They have the uh, oil and gas governors meeting there uh, every year. And she, she said, and then some of her people at the press conference and the other activists said, well, why would we ever do that? And I wasn't meaning it aggressively. I just was saying, isn't this a great moment for you to sit down? It was the same year that Donald Trump was there to say, this is what we want to see happen. How do you take us there? And we have this huge gap in that generational gap that I'm talking about. But even somebody as powerful as Greta and the other five activists that were there had the opportunity to say, let's sit down. And vice versa, by the way, the CEOs of the world, the ministers of the world had the chance to say, you know, Greta and team there, let's sit down together and map out the roadmap to COP26, right? The opportunity was absolutely perfect. And, you know, Amy, that didn't happen, but they, they kind of felt, oh, you're kind of poking the bear here. Why are you doing this? You're almost insulting her at this press conference. And it wasn't meant in that way. It was meant to say, what sort of dialogue can we have so it's not one camp on one side, one camp on the other? Can we all get along? You remember Rodney King and the LA riots, which I had a chance to cover you know, profoundly simple question. He just asked, can't we all get along? Uh, can we all kind of row the boat in the same direction is what I'd like to say, and at a much faster pace, you know, have all the oars in the water. And that's the challenge, I think, is that getting everybody together, I mean, moving forward in a unified, purpose-driven opportunity to change and to really make a, a dent in this global problem from both a geopolitical, economic, societal so that brings me to the the events that you've been a part of. Having been at both COP26 and ADAPEC, which is the largest oil and gas conference outside of the U.S., what what stood out to you as being the most important when comparing the two? Well, I was in Glasgow, actually, and uh, involved on the ground there, and then went straight to ADAPEC thereafter, which was in Abu Dhabi. It's the largest oil and gas event outside the United States. So it was a very interesting perspective in a 10-day window, if you will. At, at COP26, there was reportedly 500 uh, delegates you know, representing, including the energy CEOs themselves, 
representing hydrocarbons and all values of them, right? Oil and gas and uh, coal and the rest. And, and then uh, they didn't kind of come out and say, we're all here, let's have a dialogue with each other. And I know they were out in the negotiations behind the scenes and you know, we reported on it and talked about it. Uh, but again, I pose that to John Kerry. The oil and gas community says, we don't have a voice at the table. And he says, I think, you know, John, that's nonsense. I, I think they all have a voice. Are they willing to come public with that voice again to accelerate it uh, in the next COP27 and COP28? By the way, held in Egypt, uh, COP27, and again in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East for COP28, kind of representing West Asia. I think it's a very good opportunity, if done correctly, to say, you know, we sit on this, uh, what I call the oil and gas belt of the Middle East. Uh, this is what we see as the trajectory for oil and gas. How can we clean it up? Is natural gas going to be uh, produced to create blue hydrogen and strip out as much carbon as possible? How do we make carbon capture a reality at a faster pace? How do we clean up, become low carbon leading producers around the world? I know this is the aspiration in the Middle East. They're pushing aggressively. If you look at Saudi Aramco and Kuwait Petroleum, Adnoc uh, in the Middle East, they really want to push profound change in the natural gas discoveries in Egypt, which has lowered their import bill, right? So that's been a great breakthrough. But how do we do it at the cleanest pace possible is what I would say here. So there's a good window for COP27 and 28 to get that right. And I know they want to be very uh, ambitious uh, to do so. But again, is everybody on board with that? Can we really buy in uh, to this embracing of the entire energy chain uh, is very, very important. And when I went to Atapec, it was almost a, a call to arms, if you will, because of that underinvestment I was talking about. You go from nearly a trillion dollars, 2018, you see a $400 billion drop in investment, and you boomerang, you see higher uh, oil and gas prices. And then you have consumers complaining, and you know it's a very hot button issue in the United States. It's the same in Europe right now. People are saying, geez, our, our energy costs you know, for heating has gone up 12, 15, 20%, depending on where you're living. Uh, in Europe and the European Union, the UK, it's a very important issue. Uh, but again, you, you know, we want production, but we don't want it in our country, right? You can't have it, you know, everywhere. So you saw the Biden administration leading on OPEC and OPEC Plus. Uh, OPEC produces about 30% of the daily uh, demand today. You know, produce more, uh, but we don't want to produce in the United States, right? Ramp up your production. And they kind of say, okay, we need to manage the transition ourselves. We don't want to over-invest uh, while we're going through the transition? Can we just have a steady flow of output in the future? This is a major challenge, how to get that right. Maintain the oil and gas investment, clean it up as fast as possible, but at the same time, accelerate the renewable investment and really drive innovation. Give the incentives to drive innovation. You know, we had the smartphone and everybody didn't think it would pr provide that much change over a decade, right? The iPhone and all the other smartphones in the market. Look at the change from the iPhone and that sort of innovation and the power on the phone, you're telling me we can't do that in the energy sector. I just don't buy it. So it's government policy being shaped right, but it's also you know, a realistic assessment that governments need to articulate to all generations, the developed and developing world, make sure the developing world is on board, has the financing for it as a priority uh, to make this happen. And your perspective on geopolitics as it relates to the energy transition is fascinating. Uh, do you see some inherent risks to number of countries that are overly dependent on fossil fuels and it could lead to social unrest? I see two profound risks, and this is something that is underreported, even though I, you know, my reporting on energy, I tried to uh, 
uh, drive it home. But we have about 770 million people around the world that don't have access to energy whatsoever. About uh, 2 billion that don't have regular access to electricity. So think about that, right? So 21st century, uh, the numbers that I just talked about, that's a huge problem and it's left out of the equation. So we need to tackle that. Better to do it as clean as possible, right? For the folks in, uh, in Africa and Latin America, Southeast Asia, the, the real trouble spots where there's a shortage of capacity. That's a huge challenge. And I think it's often overlooked. You have to balance it out with climate, but I'm not saying slow down on renewable investment. I'm saying accelerate it to make sure they have energy as clean as possible. Number two, again, something that's widely overlooked, but I can take you around the world, if you will, verbally. So you say Iraq, Iran, Libya, uh, Nigeria, Angola, go to Central Asia uh, and Eastern Europe, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, you go to Latin America, Venezuela, the prospective new discoveries of Argentina. You go to Africa, huge gas fields in Senegal and Mozambique. Uh, they're not going to get their window of opportunities, right? So if you think of the conflict in Iran and Iraq and the on and off wars and sanctions and the rest, the better days of revenue gains from oil and gas are, are going behind us. So it's almost tragic to say the stranded assets are going to be there and they missed that window of oil and gas industrialization on the largest scale where peak demand was uh, perhaps has already hit, right? Around 100 million barrels a day or not. We need to factor this in. And I tell you, Amy, no one is publicly talking about it. Let's put it that way. So the risk of fallout, I don't worry about the Gulf producers that have you know, bigger sovereign funds, smaller populations, lowest cost producers in the world. Not a big issue. Those other states I talked about, it's a concern. I mean, the social unrest that's going to come without the oil and gas if they haven't made that transition. And a little comma or caveat here, I would say, when it comes to gas, natural gas is a bridge fuel. It's something John Kerry talked about uh, recently when I sat down with him. So do we recognize it as a bridge fuel or just a fuel that we will need it and we need to clean it up to get that blue hydrogen uh, into the system as clean as possible is another you know, vital point. But I think there's an inherent risk over the next two decades. Again, we're not great at medium-term planning, right, as governments and societies, but it's a huge risk if those countries are socially strained because the revenues have dropped when it comes to their hydrocarbons, right? Right. So you touched a little bit about the social impact here, and there's the ESG, environmental, social, and government governance, impacting the energy transition from a strategy standpoint and a financial standpoint. How is that happening and how is that working? Well, it's extraordinary because in preparation of our interview, I wanted to get the updated numbers. And if you look, and there's a lot of variance on these numbers, so take them with a kind of grain of salt, if you will. But it was up to $11 trillion in 2018, all funds under management in ESG. And that hit $16 trillion uh, last year by some accounts. And it's expected to grow threefold between now and 2030. I mean, it is the name of the game. And this is driven in a very positive way by what we see in Wall Street, uh, the financial capital where I'm sitting in, uh, in Europe of London, uh, Frankfurt, you know, Paris, what we see in the Nordic countries at the same time. If you are a university endowment or a major pension fund, for example, and you don't want to hold oil and gas companies, right? That's a, a huge driver for energy companies not to be heavy in oil and gas and make the transition themselves. 
That's what we saw over the last uh, three or four years of that capital flowing into the market uh, next. We haven't calibrated it very well because we have shortages of oil right now. And that's why the price is so high. We have shortages of gas in Europe, especially because of the dispute over the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, uh, the demand recovery because of the pandemic. So we do need to calibrate it correctly to make sure that energy is there, not at too expensive of a price. But it's going to be the capital, the ESG capital that's going to drive this change and again, you need the policy incentives. Very smart people I've spoken to uh, that have been in the industry as CEOs or ministers for decades have all said, we need to deal with the carbon tax. How do you price carbon uh, to basically rejiggle the equation where we have today in supply and demand of the future to incentivize the renewables, uh, the carbon capture, uh, the carbon sequestration uh, also into the market as well, greater innovation to accelerate it. Hydrogen, you know, we talked about it 10 years ago and it just died. I think hydrogen's here to stay, right? And you see probably a third of global demand meeting, being met by hydrogen probably by you know 2030, the expectations that I see out there. But it's having a profound impact. Does that spread also to the development of the energy sectors in the developing world at the same time? This is where the IMF, the World Bank, uh, the EBRD and other institutions, AIB, Asia, of course, and the regional development banks have to come in at a very aggressive pace to make that happen uh, aggressively is what I, is my point. So I've been anxious to ask you this question because I ask most of our guests the same question and your response, I think, will be fascinating. What is something that you believe about energy and the energy transition that some or other, some others might disagree with? Well, I keep on pointing to my, you know, my daughters and my wife and other people I talk to and say, don't discount innovation, right? So if the incentives are there, we can have this global earth shot, if you will, of great innovation over a short window of time. Uh, I hold out a lot of hope. Okay, so that there's hope on the table. And I'd say, let's push it. And all the policymakers I've had a chance to interface at events or uh, interviewed um, you know, editorially over the last you know, 30 years. They say the same thing, they're accelerating and say, let's drive as hard as we can, we have no choice. So that's the hope side of it. I think the downside and the exercise I went through when I was doing the CNN series, the Global Energy Challenge, off the record, I think I talked to 100 people over that 18 month window preparation uh, for this series and you know a year of production and delivering on the, on the series itself. Off the record, you say, do we have any chance, any hope of capping global warming at 1.5 degrees centigrade by 2050. And sadly, every single time, I don't think I got one exception. Some say it's a stretch target, but I think we can hit it. But you know, I'd say 95% of these leading minds and energy around the world, the scientists, the think tanks, the CEOs, the ministers, said candidly, I don't think so. I think we started this process too late. So now you hear more and more you know, building resilience into the system mitigation, right, uh, Amy, to prevent the fallout, to kind of resist uh, you know, global warming. I'm from California. We never had fires north of San Francisco going to the Washington uh, border into Canada. You saw what happened over the last two years, these you know, fire pots that we had and huge amounts of you know, horrible fires. You saw that in Australia. We saw flooding in Europe to a level we've never seen before. Right, that's kind of mother nature speaking at us that we need to accelerate it. I just, and you hear the people that are kind of lead the industry say we're behind the curve. John Kerry said, you know, we're playing with fire. It just means that we have to move as fast as possible. 
and I don't want to you know, say in 30 years we should have done better. The last 30 years since we had the Rio Agreement, we haven't done a whole lot. So I don't want to end on a negative note, but we need to really accelerate. Well, that's a good message to end with. So do you have any final thoughts? And can you let our listeners know where they can find you if they want to on social media, if they'd like to follow you or see where what you're reporting on? Uh, sure. I Well, I, I talked about the events that I chair. I think about 20 to 25 events around the world, but a lot in the Middle East, a lot of them covering energy. And I put a lot of that on social media. Uh, I get involved in podcasts like this. So that's a kind of another venue. I get asked by, you know, different media organizations to appear as a, a an analyst. So I'm, you know, doing some uh, teaching in the space of emerging markets and energy, which I look to make a difference. I'm involved with the World uh, Economic Forum as an energy fellow after being a media leader there for, you know, almost three decades. So I'm very active in these communities trying to, to make a difference. You can find me as JD the Globalist on uh, Twitter. And I also do a lot of posting under my name. There's not a lot of John Defterius in the world. I have one relative with the name, uh, but on LinkedIn as well. And all those events that I do chair, they're also out there very active to kind of share uh, that message. But that's what I'm trying to get across here. I, I did so when that, uh, you know, that last series we did with CNN, I covered it you know, aggressively. I think it was over tilted towards hydrocarbons you know, for the first 15 to 20 years of my coverage. In the last decade, you could see this transition taking place. We wanted to be ahead of the curve editorially at CNN on that, me personally the same way. And I have that sort of spirit in this transition now uh, from full-time journalism to the mix of uh, my professional endeavors. Well, as I said before, your daughters are very fortunate to have someone with your wisdom and your insight into a very, very pressing issue for all of us and for society around the world. So I just want to thank you, John, for joining us today, and we hope you'll come back again someday. My pleasure, Amy, and thanks for the uh, very intellectual conversation. It's big picture thinking, but we could drill down into the subjects, which I think is very important. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. We hope you found this episode valuable. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. You can find more information and all of the resources mentioned in today's episode at Siemens-Energy.com forward slash podcast. Siemens Energy is providing this podcast as a public service. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by Siemens Energy. The views expressed by guests and hosts are their own, and their appearances on this program do not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Views and opinions expressed by Siemens Energy employees are those of the employees and do not necessarily reflect the views of Siemens Energy or any of its officials. Music